Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of City Parents Talk. I'm Anna Richards from City Parents and I'm delighted to be joined today by Nels Abbey. Nels is a British Nigerian writer, he's a media executive, he's co-founder of the Black Writers Guild and he's the author of his debut book, Think Like a White Man. In the book, penned under the satirical alter ego Professor Boule Whitelaw III, Nels draws on his former career as a banker to deliver a satire of modern racial discourse and politics in the corporate world. Nels, it's a great pleasure to meet you today. Thank you so much for joining me. I've given a very brief taster about you and your book just now. Let's start by hearing a little more, if that would be okay. Tell us a little bit about your book and why you decided to write it, please. Well, thank you very much for having me, Anna. Very grateful. It's good to be with you today. So I started writing the book in 2014. I mean, it was kind of crazy because I just became a dad and I was working at a very, very large investment management organisation. And my missus wanted to go spend some time with her parents with baby. And I just knew that my life was in a transition, that I was going to be doing what I was doing in about 20, 30 years' time, where I was going to really have to make some bold moves right now. And I was already a writer, but I thought, let me just make some bold moves seriously moved right now so I wanted to go somewhere quiet somewhere tranquil somewhere I could concentrate to get some work done and do some really quality writing so I hopped on a plane to Vegas Atlanta and Miami by myself and I wrote for about two weeks and I wrote a good chunk of the book there because it really helped me get off the ground but the thinking behind it was that I'd experienced a lot in the professional world a real lot and I felt that I had to actually find a way to pass that on to other people but I didn't want to book about how to be black in the professional world or anything else I wanted to write something that was a metaphor for being a black person in the in the world in general in particular in the western hemisphere and then also to being a black person in the professional world which is probably where you're at your most visible and um, most minoritized and that's what I came up with. I came up with Think Like a White Man, which was, again, based upon something an, I, an old mentor of mine used to say, to literally think like a white man or he to proceed in the actual corporate world. And I thought it was just a, a good metaphor for actually trying to navigate the world. I love the idea of jetting away and, and focusing for a few weeks. I think that's a really good time to focus your energy. It's quite boring, to be told, but it gives you room and space and also inspiration to write. Absolutely. We've mentioned that your book is very funny. It is a satire and you you obviously deliver it and narrate it through this alter ego but obviously underpinning it is some very serious issues. Why did you choose this way to write your book? I think it falls down to the uh, philosophy often comes from very very interesting places and I think sometimes just for me sometimes I hear something and I think it says something more to me. So for example I've long considered Mary Poppins to be the most important philosopher of the 21st century and I often say that her words a spoonful of sugar helps medicine go down in the most delightful way, speaks a lot about conveying serious and strong messages through the prism of humour. And I think that's what you're meant to do as a satirist too, that you're just, um, you're meant to expose um, folly and hypocrisy and vice and wrongdoing and, and ill and everything else through humour. And I think that just those two things, again, you want to speak about heavy subject, but to make it a bit lighter so people can find a way to really just find it a bit more accessible. I think it connects a bit more. People can find a way to laugh at things sometimes. There's something about us as humans, as these animals we call human beings, that I believe it creates a degree of empathy and a degree of familiarity. That's essential to at least trigger some degree of change or to at least sell some books. So 
which, mm. both of which are in my interest. But certainly it makes it more digestible, doesn't it? A little bit more yeah. relatable, perhaps. Can you tell me, tell our listeners about some of these experiences of, of racism that you experienced in your time in the financial services world? And, and I'm interested to know why you think perhaps these issues are more acute in the corporate world. There's one of the scenarios that's been well publicized, understandably, was that I think one of your first few days when you were in the reception of the bank and people assumed you were a member of the security team and showed you their security passes, which is incredibly shocking. But love to hear a little bit more about that scenario, maybe others where you experience that kind of racism and, and particularly in the corporate environment. Yeah, I think in the corporate environment, so it's funny because I wrote this about my time in banking and I left banking to join media. And to a certain degree, when I worked internally in media, I quickly realised that banking was pretty much a utopia compared to media. It was actually a lot more, I mean, media is often seen to be this liberal environment or so, and um, it can be quite preachy. But in terms of internally, they really don't have their house in order. It's actually a lot worse, a lot more oppressive in terms of overt, serious racism. But when I think of um, my time in, say, banking, which I wrote the book on, of course, there was the famous first day at work. There's, there's one situation I wrote about where my boss, in a rather rude way, asked me twice, actually, happened in my career. And I was not in a sort of role that this would normally happen in, where a boss or a line manager or so would demand I go and buy them a sandwich or something else that impacted just very, very... It felt the first time I just, the first time it happened, I pretty much just turned it down and laughed it off. And then that cost me a pretty penny when I got made redundant not long afterwards, which I could you never know, there could have, maybe could may have happened either way, but I didn't get a pay rise I was after all the redundancy, which is part of what the, my boss at the time actually said to me directly. The second time I had really loads of work to do that I was just out of the blue, complete shock. My line manager just asked me, said to me, hey, can you go buy me a sandwich, please? And it just felt, again, it's one of those things that would never, ever be done. It's not the Mississippi South. It's not uh, Mississippi burning or anything else. But it's something that just said to me that there's no way, Jose, that my white male equivalent, would, this would happen to them. And in fact, I went to go speak to some of my white male equivalents. So they were shocked that it was actually happening. People my age and my level or so, the age thing doesn't really matter. But where I was in terms of the corporate ladder or so, it just was, it was something really, really shocking. It really made me think a lot about how maybe, maybe how I was conducting and carrying myself and what made me open to that sort of demand but then again too there's other things too in terms of actual pay structures and when you discover that you're being paid a micro fraction of what other people are being paid or the bonuses they're getting compared to what you're getting and then you start to find out that it's actually systematic so i remember once uh, one of the um, senior leaders in the department stupidly forgot to take um to pick up a printing of uh, the pay scales for everybody or so and then somebody found it then pretty much it became this underground thing in the departments where people were just sending it around in, uh, to, independently and privately to private emails. And it became very, very starkly clear, clear that there was a, that black people, for example, were paid significantly less than white people within the department, that there was uh, Asian people, white people were largely comparable to a certain degree, but black people was a clear, massive 20, 30, 40% drop that you're just seeing immediately that just jumped off the page. You, you get these the multifaceted degree of racism, which is one, of course, the impolite side of racism, which is go by me saying something else. Or sometimes you then get the, the actual subconscious side of racism, which is everybody mistaking you for a security guard. And then sometimes too, you then get the actual structural institutional racism, which is I am paying you significantly less for the same labor, sometimes even more labor than anybody else. And then it boils down to things like promotions, so lesser access to promotions, business opportunities, growth opportunities, it all just adds up and creates a cycle of it itself that what you then see is that after about 10, 15, 20, 25 years, 
when you start to compare a person who's not had to contend with racism or other forms of structural disadvantage to people who've had to live under the burden of them, you then start to see the massive career gulf happening between them. I'll give you an example. One of my colleagues, she started on the same, very same day, a brilliant young lady, a little bit older than me, but she became my line manager for a bit too. She started on the same day in the same company at the same level as the top boss of the department. So the top boss, she had had about six or seven promotions within the 15 years she'd been there. My colleague, who is a black lady, had one. And uh, there may be some performance differences there. There may be other bits and bobs, or maybe there might be a driving, or maybe it might be other things, but it was pretty clear. And I think, again, too, when you know how companies tend to assess their employees, most people, you'd fall into two categories, whether you're, you're either a worker or you're talent. If you're talent, you rise through the ranks pretty quickly. If you're a worker, you'll probably much crawl through the ranks. But even by the standards of a worker, 15 years to get promoted once or so and to only get a substantial pay rise only once is a very harsh and long period of time to go and stomach things. So in terms of actual racism, it was very, very, it's a lot more complex and times insidious. But unfortunately, sometimes I had to deal with fairly blatant stuff too. But it's, but it's all something that you just, you, you, you roll with the punches and you try and learn to play the game as you go along. And I think as people go, go from one generation to another, and that's part of what I wanted to do with the book, was to explain how the game works so people recognise it exactly as and when it's coming and, um, and how to deal with it from there or so. And I did it in a humorous way and some, somewhat, sometimes a metaphorical way. Yeah, I think that's incredibly powerful. I was going to ask you to what extent is uh, your experience about active racism, I guess, versus ignorance or there's a lot of talk, isn't there, around unconscious bias and those kind yeah. of terms. But to look at a, a sheet of salary or the actual data, it's very difficult to get away from that. And in an corporate environment where all those procedures, spreadsheets, there's endless structure, isn't there, around these things? So I will say one thing that I found that was rather interesting was that now, the organisation I was working for was unique insofar as they had black people there. The ones prior to me going to that organisation, the organisations I worked for prior to this organisation, had maybe one black person or maybe two. This had like, I don't know, been a department of about 50 or 60 people. It's probably about seven or eight, maybe nine or 10 of them were black, which was about, which is quite good. No, it's more than 50 or 60 people. It was more than that, but it was about 80 or 90 or so. Then there were about seven or eight of them in London, which was, which was very, very good for a professional services firm, for, a, for, an, for an investment management organization. And so it was just interesting, again, when you actually looked at the raw data, when you saw it, and it just lifted the veil up. So I don't know, sometimes I think, I take, I find it very, very, impossibly difficult to take when I see you walk into an organization I see the term investor and people or we are an equal opportunities employer or something else that effect it really it really makes it very very difficult for me to take those things seriously because sometimes I know once you've lifted a skirt up a little bit so you start to see some interesting stuff so but that was it that was that was just it and I think that Again, it's one of those things that you've got an organisation that was employing people in good numbers, decent enough numbers, but was significantly underpaying people. And then you had the other side of the coin, which was they're not even employing people at all. And I don't know whether how we compared in terms of actual in terms of pay or anything else. But that was just the way it went. Even good progressive bosses, good, yeah. really good progressive bosses, people who are really, really good people, genuinely good people, people who I know really cared for me and loved me or so, still it was quite clear discrepancy at times that hey how I was getting paid to other people it was almost like it was a given that you're going to be paid less mm. and then, um, but you just keep moving you keep moving keep working towards um a better tomorrow and hoping for the best we often see this tension between the policy level lots of good intentions and actually the culture if it's being fed through to how the organization is operating and the people within it on a day-to-day -day basis then there's a long way to go sometimes
the aim of your book is to help out black people coming into the corporate world and learning from your experience, really. One of the points that we've talked about, particularly around this assumption made about you and the reception that day is around tags. You talked about career killing labels. What's your advice on how people can steer clear of these negative labels? And, and how can we... How can we be better about not labelling people, do you think? I think so there's certain times, there's certain buzzwords. And I think I started noticing it when I got to university for the first time. Because when you get to university, you're in a big, bad world. And pretty much you're all grown-ups now and you're pretty much socialising into one another. It's a very different environment. And you're starting to realise how people perceive the world or view things from where they come from. And I just remembered when I got to university, I started university in the year 2000. And what was interesting was that I just remember going to somewhere, I can't remember where it was. I, I, think, I think actually it was probably my laundry at my halls of residence. And I got speaking to, a, to two really, really amazing young women, um, both of whom are fashion designers right now. And then um, we were just having a great conversation. And what was interesting to me was that the word rude boy kept coming up or so. One of us said to me, we don't mean you, you're not what we call a rude boy or so, but a certain type of rude boy goes to the student union bar. And I was a rude boy. I've never, I've, I've heard the term rude boy, of course, as a Jamaican patois term. It's, it was like an evolution of the word rude boy to be associated with disqualities. It's kind of like the word woke, what's happening with the word woke right now. And I noticed that there were also code terms sent to me to describe a certain people from all sorts of backgrounds. So if you're a woman, for example, like say, if you're a woman and somebody said to you, she's a bit catty or she's a bit um, stuck up would be another one. Or there's all sorts of terms I use to describe all, all sorts of different people. And the last thing anybody wants is for those words to be ascribed to them. And so when I was writing the book, I started to look into things like what are some of these terms? Aggressive was, of course, one that really jumped off the page in terms of people within the corporate world, in terms of black people, particularly in the corporate world. Aggressive was one that I really found really, really powerful because I found that it really cut through and everyone understood. But now, today or so, if I was looking, if I was rewriting the book today, today, I'll probably say the word woke would be the one that really jumps off the page again. People, is not quality that people want to be associated with. Even though it's a good thing, you're alert to racism, that, so you're alert to racism and social injustice, but it's it's been hijacked into something very, very different. I had a big argument with Andrew Neal on Question Time about this the other day. Pretty crazy stuff. So aggressive, frightening, scary, of course, when you think of scary sometimes, go back to Spice Girls, of course. It, is it a coincidence that the Black Spice Girls was nicknamed Scary Spice? And you then, you notice these things really and truly just, they cascade, not just through the corporate world, but through society. And it's almost like a tag. And once you've got it on you, it's really, really hard to get rid of. It's almost like a whisper about you. So, oh, that person, I've heard of that person's, that person's aggressive. Or that person can be a little bit uppity. Or so that that's a person who probably doesn't know their position. And once you get those terms described to you, once that is attached to your reputation, it is very, very difficult to get rid of it. it you find that you're just stuck with it. And it closes doors. It closes minds. It closes hearts. So it makes it a lot harder for you to progress. It's a social stigma that's based upon you that has very, very real-life economic consequences. Because, again... Once that's described to you successfully, it goes around the organization or goes around this, the industry. You start to find that you're not flying as high as you should be flying. Your salary is not growing at the rate you should be growing. You might have to move around more than you should be moving around. And yeah, you start to see it's, it has an impact on your life. So I call it, I mean, I think the best term for it would be compound racism to a certain degree. That, that it does have a career limiting impact on people. And again, too, it also has a mental health impact on them, too. It's just a certain type of terms or reputation management that makes it harder. 
who are ethnic minorities in particular, notably, most notably black people are inside the sharper wing, because even when you're looking at salary differentiations between different types of ethnic minorities, black people are very, very firm at the bottom, actually not firm at the bottom, um, Bangladeshi and Pakistani people are rooted a bit lower. But when you look at who's portrayed in what way in society or so, you start to realize, okay, yeah, British Indians are portrayed a lot better ethnic image in British society than, say, Black people do. Black people have a better ethnic image than, say, Bangladeshi or Pakistani people do. And you start to realise that the social order reflects itself as an economic order too, and how you actually fight your way out of that, particularly in a in an area where you're having to be as, as bland and blend into the wallpaper as possible in those sorts of careers. It makes it very, very difficult. Mm. They're all assumptions, aren't they? Whichever we're making we're making assumptions yeah, about people judgments yeah. about people isn't it and you talk about you know bland environment blending into the wallpaper and i loved all your your do's and don'ts throughout the book which is Hilarious. all about how to yeah. conform isn't it some of my favorites were dance at this party but not too well always order a salad at a working lunch i thought wear a wedding ring was really interesting so you appear to be in a stable home environment which I've had lots of women being told to take theirs off because the really? risk they're going to, yeah, the risk that they might look like somebody who's going to go off and be pregnant and take a maternity leave. That's um, so it's, but it's all conforming, isn't it? Do tell our listeners a little bit more about this. And, and actually even harking back to your point about being told to get a sandwich for your boss back then, it's subservience and it's power, yeah. which I hope is changing for the better. But tell us a bit more about what you would advise perhaps a, a young black man or black woman coming into the yeah. corporate environment and and how that white man mindset and playing the game how you'd explain a little bit more about about that please yeah so i think that there's a, something we call normal or normality there's something that we just call normality and the assumption is that everybody knows what that means and when you go to particular environments everybody has to blend into this concept called normal but some people, it's more foreign than it is to other people. Normal in, say, the professional world where I worked in, and then when I worked in the city of London, was fairly foreign to me to begin with. The type of things that were normal to me that I was into and that I really liked doing, or not just normal, but professionalism, the things that I do or I was into or so, when I was not a wild person or crazy by any means whatsoever, but I was just somewhat different to all that in that environment. And I was finding increasingly on a day-to-day -day basis that I was having to become something very, very different to what I was in order for me to actually to blend in. And then it was given to me as formal advice that, look, if you really want to get in and get on in this environment, you just have to do what other people do as is normal conduct around here. So the professional world is often two things. It's part, of course, performance and it's part politics. And politics is probably the heavier part because people tend to actually gravitate towards, promote and empower people they like, people who are like, and they, people tend to like people who are like them. And you start to see that that's a revolving door that you see that if I like you, I'm hiring you because I like you and I like you because you're like me and round and round it goes, it comes cycle. And then you find that about 20, 30 years, you end up with an all white male board, which hopefully is changing. So that's, a, that's where it became increasingly difficult for me that I was just having to persistently change who and everything or what I actually am. If you take, for example, there's a book by Franz Fanon called uh, Black Faces with White Masks. I hope I've given the title of the book very, very well. Well, he actually speaks to this concept and it was something I did a little bit too in the satirical side of things as far as I think like a white man's concerned. So if I was saying to a young person today going into the actual, into the work environment today and you really want to make it as a black person in the professional world, the first thing I would say to you, that person would be, you just have to figure out what, what the, almost what, what normal is within that environment. In fact, the first thing I'll say to him is go and read things like a white man. Second thing I'll say to him is you have to go in that environment and understand what normal is. 
human being and what how professionalism is defined in that environment and 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 see how people at the very top of the environment people who are going to the top of the environment how they conduct themselves what they look like pretty much everything even if you take a look at it have you ever looked men's women's fashion changes a lot faster than men's fashion but for a long time, uh, it was fashionable for men to wear a suit with a slit in the back or so. Then suddenly it just changed to the flap. And then, um, but, and then everybody just moved to the flap pretty quickly. And I only moved to the flap because I started to see my boss doing it. First I started to see David Cameron doing it. Then I saw my boss doing it. Then I thought, ah, so I need to. So all my suits, with, um, which are not that many, truth be told, but my cheap suits with flaps on the back or so, with, um, with a slit in the back, I just changed quickly because that was how it was done essentially, that you're finding that everybody, particularly men who are ambitious or so, and to a certain degree, they're just so people see a mirror image of themselves when people speak to you. In certain environments, it can be quite negative to you. It can be negative to your mental health. It can be negative to who you are as a person. It could even alienate yourself from yourself, which can be very, very damaging to you. I've seen that now with some politicians who were in the city before they went into politics, and you can actually hear some of the stuff they speak. I mean, black and brown politicians, some of the stuff they say is actually fairly racist. Often, but it's the language that they've learned within these sorts of environments that they've gone into. So yes, yeah, so if I was saying that, I would say, listen, the first thing you need to do, read the book. Second thing you need to do is understand the environment you're in and recognize that look, the qualities that you have developed over the course of your life. And um, they're admirable qualities, but those qualities might not be what people are looking for from you in this environment, that they might want you to be more like what they want you or need you to be. And you just have to adapt and adjust to it, essentially. It's really, really difficult thing to do. It's really difficult to leave who you are. And most people do it. Everybody has to do it to a certain degree. It's not a black thing or a, it's not a racial thing. It's just a professional world thing that these environments make us blend into what they want us to be. And then we go forward from there. It's just, it takes a really bold soul to bring yourself fully to the office. Most people really don't. Uh, most people aren't really just. So I think that, that the key thing would be to understand how their professionals define that environment, understand what that environment really, really wants for you, not what they say they want or so, what they really, really want for you, what they what they really want for the people who are at the top of the, the environment, what made them competitive. You need to find two mentors, I would say. I would say you need to find two mentors. One, who looks and sounds like you is coming from the environment that you come from and can be honest with you about what it's really like in that environment and give you the advice to really get to where you're going to. And the other one, someone who looks and sounds like people at the top of the organization will probably be a white man because you need to get the advice from, say, the powerful white man who understands how the environment works and how it has worked for him or her also. And white men don't just come in, in white, I'll say that too. So, so, and sometimes they're not even men too. So you need to find that out too, that first element, which is how does it work for that person? And then you find that person who's like you, who's probably done, who's made it some way in the organization and find out how they made it work for them. And you blend the two of them to make it work for you. Because there's certain things that the powerful, metaphorical white male, all powerful, all seeing white male at the top of most organizations that that person can do or give to you or help you understand that because that person's probably never walked through your shoes before, essentially. Fantastic advice. I think mentorship's a big one that comes up it really um, is. a lot for us as well. And I suppose, finally, Nels, I'm aware that amazing advice that comes through in your book and from our discussion today for Black people, but also for white people okay. like me listening to you. You're telling me your story. You're telling the listeners of City Parents your story. And, and many of them may be white as well. What's your advice to them, to us, to me, to be a better colleague, ally, what can white people take away from your book, do you think, and for our conversation today? How can we all be better colleagues? 
there was a revealing moment in our conversation um, today, Anna, that was very, very interesting. And it was the moment we spoke about the wedding ring. And it revealed something to me that maybe one of my flaws is that I'm not listening enough to. That I said that, hey, in the book, we satirically said that wear a wedding ring when you go into interviews and everything else. That I said that from my position as a, a mature black gentleman of some prestige and everything else, so from my viewpoint. But here you spoke as a woman to me. And you made it clear to me that actually it's very different when you're a woman that you shouldn't wear a wedding ring because somebody could feel you're on maternity leave. And that means that they're, not, they're going to be less likely to hire you, which means that when it boils down to actually when, pe when people look at men, also, they see stability in a wedding ring. They see calm. They see that it's best of a stable family life. Everything else, but a woman is seen as disadvantage. I didn't think of that. I didn't really know that. And I think that the lesson for me, and I think it's a lesson for all of us in this, is that we should probably listen to each other a lot more and have these sorts of conversations and these and, and document these experiences a lot more as possible, so that we can all understand what we're going through and how we're going through it. Because I never, in a month of Sundays, would have thought that a wedding ring would stop anybody actually being hired but it turns out that it's actually an advantage to men and a disadvantage to women particularly women of a particular age so it's um you notice that that social disadvantage has clear economic consequences a difference in pounds and pence in the long term so i think there's one thing that we could all learn also regardless of whatever line it is whether it's class race gender um disability sector i think the key thing for me and i hope it's a key thing now people take this conversation too that and it's a universal thing that's always going to be true, and that we should probably listen to each other a lot more. And how probably, if there's one thing I would implement in uh, any environment I go into tomorrow, or anywhere I work in, I work in, and something I do with the Black Writers Guild too, is that I try and lead listening sessions. Just people just listen to your experiences sometimes. That it's, you don't want to hear about these experiences when it becomes a lawsuit. You don't want to hear about these experiences when, it, when it's gone bad. You want to, and you don't want to hear about these when things aren't working anymore, and you're trying to put it all back together again. It's a critical form of reputational management and understanding and also in the, in the management of, of, of people that we try and speak and understand each other a lot more. When I was in the actual, when I was working in the city, one of the key, one of the ideas I advise that we put together is something we call an idiot thing, where every two weeks or so we have a, a, an idiot's hour where we just get into a room and we come up with as many wacky ideas as possible there's no judgment just make an idiot of yourself come up with an idea and we come up with business ideas but in those moments where people are fearless of actually coming up with ideas and fearless of how that idea will be reflected upon them you'll find some genius in there because it creates the moments where people are going to listen to you people might laugh at you you might laugh at yourself it's an idiot room but I'm pretty confident within that. It might seem like a waste of time, but that's where you find the hole in the wall, where you find uh, the iPhone, where you find those critical innovations, where you get those people who are able to come out of their shell and really just say fun things that may be deemed absolutely crazy. But in there also is a moment of genius. I think in terms of how we interact or interrelate with to each other, I think it's critical that we find those, those idiot rooms, those healing and listening sessions is something that I think is actually critical. I think that's probably a better way um, to get to where we're going to because it'll create empathy. Thank you. I love the idea of an idiot room. Just after we've learned all these ways to conform, just strip them back for a moment and actually just let it all go. And I bet some moments of genius come out. I can quite imagine that. So thank you so much, Nalza. It's been really, really fascinating talking to you. I really appreciate you telling your story. And I think to finish on a note of thinking about listening and, and opening our minds up to different experiences is a very valuable one. So thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners as well. As Nell says, please do buy his book, Think Like a White Man. 
Dan. A really great read. I really encourage you to. It was very funny and very exposing. If you'd like to find out a bit more about City Parents, about our programme coming up, do visit us at cityparents.co.uk. You can follow us on the usual channels, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, and you can stay tuned for more from City Parents Talk coming soon. Goodbye. <laughs>